Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hey, it's Pauline back with your new episode of Meet the Expats. Today I meet with Nifer, who grew up in a very multicultural background, to say the least, and we'll be discussing what it's like growing up with different nationalities. Hey, Nifer, how are you? Hey, thank you for having me. Great. It's great to have you. I'm excited to hear your background story. And if we jump right in, let's start with your favorite question. Where are you from, Nifer? <laughs> Make it simple. <laughs> right. Uh, straightforward answer. The shortest I can give, Europe. <laughs> okay, that's a start. <laughs> so, um, so my mom's German, my dad's English. They both ended up traveling quite a fair bit. Um, actually ended up meeting here in Paris amusingly enough, um, and then made their way down south over to Spain. So that's where I was born. Um, okay. So the usual standard, the standard answer is German mother, British dad, born in Spain, currently living in France. It's still a long answer, I know. It's still a long, complicated answer. <laughs> you just have to, if you make a why, like you take yeah. both parents, you know, Germany and England, you, it's at the top, they met in Paris, and then you just go down. It's like a Y shape. And then and you good. went back up to Paris. Just then I just went a bit, a little, yeah. Then I just went a little bit all over the place, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that maybe tell us a bit more of what it's like growing up with parents from two completely different nationalities and you in a third country. In terms of culture, what did you sort of pick up from one or the other, or even from Spain? Then with which is where you grew up. Actually, that's that's an amazing question to ask. And so it's very interesting. There's multiple different aspects to that. So let's try and unpack it a little bit. So Jerry, as a child of foreign parents, we attached ourselves, my brother and, and myself, we attached ourselves to the Spanish culture. So right. originally when, when we were born and sort of when I was eight years old and you asked me, you know, where I was from, I'd say I'm Spanish, but my parents are foreign. Okay. So that was my my first cultural identity of I want to fit in with the group around me and everybody's Spanish, so let's be Spanish. And I'm just a bit mm. of a weird Spanish person, basically. And did you go to Spanish school there? I, I went to Spanish school. All of my friends were Spanish. It was just when I got home, languages would happen. And when I went right. to see my dad in the UK at that point, languages would happen. Um, but sort of outside of the home space, we just wanted to be Spanish um, and okay. fit in. That's interesting. <laughs> it's it's quite unusual, but apparently it's sort of, you know, kids want to fit in. They do want to mm. attach themselves. So we just did what other kids did, basically. And it was only when we sort of started being 10 or 12 that you start to really value having other languages. I remember um, mm. the story that drove it home for my brother, actually. His friend of his wanted him to stay over that night and he didn't want to stay. So he turned around <laughs> to my mum, changed language. And when mom, I need you to say no when they ask if I can stay here. <laughs> and the best thing is he said this in German because it was the first time where he was like, I need to communicate to my mother without the people that are in the room knowing what I'm saying. And right. the fun thing is my mother's reaction was so shocked because we would never speak other languages. Like we'd, we'd understand everything, but it was really hard to make her speak the languages. She was so shocked to hear my brother willingly speak German that her reaction fitted in perfectly. So she, she just went like, huh? 
No, he can't stay. No, he can't stay. <laughs> <laughs> He's suddenly speaking German. There's a problem. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a similar thing for me. I remember I used to speak always Spanish to my dad. Um, and actually, my dad, despite being English, he would speak German with us. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So how did, how did he learn German? So he learned German at school um he was born in Birmingham and wanted to get out of England basically and okay. he just went the way to get out of England is to learn other languages and literally get out of England fair point so he he learned German and he spent quite a lot of years um working in the country and sort of moving around so he had a very good level but the thing is my mum can speak languages but she's she's not one of those people that bothers too much about grammar hmm. so she'd end up switching to English um, with a few mistakes and my dad was like no you've got to speak German to the kids uh. and he found that the only way of making my mum stick to the German was to speak German himself as well and that way when we were all together German would be the main language and because we spent time in the UK over the summers and we had friends over there we actually learned English through our friends rather mm. than through our parents so that was a little bit the distinction and then over time, my mum also got very used to speaking to us in German. At some right. point, it was a mixture of Spanish and German. And we'd speak Spanish to both of our parents, and they'd speak German to us. Um, and eventually, over time, it now changed. So I speak English to my dad. Okay. I ask my mother to speak German to me. I speak Spanish to my brother. And my mum has to speak in Spanish with my brother. So it's pretty confusing for everyone yeah, it, it, it's very confusing so when people go like oh so do, do you speak all of the languages I'm like if I call all of my family in one day I will speak all of the languages that I know in one day basically. right but if all of you are around a dinner table will you be having one-on-one -on -one conversations in different languages or yes. will you all decide to speak one language no, at no, that no, table? No, no. so I let's say I've got my dad and my brother at the table with um, so I'd speak in Spanish to my brother and my brother would speak in Spanish to me and we'd both speak English with my dad and right. our dad would speak English to us. So in this, in three people having one conversation would use two languages. That's funny that you wouldn't all just switch to one, although all of you actually speak those languages. Well, we do completely. And obviously when I was speaking to my, to my brother, my, uh, sorry, my dad could understand what I was saying in Spanish mm. and what we were talking about. But it's, it's actually one of those funny things. I've also seen it. It's very common with children of expats or foreigners in general mm. that they will speak the language of the country um, right. to their parents. So the parent will be speaking, you know, I don't know. Will have to speak that language. Yeah. So, you know, the, the parent will be, say, speaking English in, in Spain and the kids will respond in Spanish. It's happened to me. I go into a shop and I hear this mum and daughter in one of the other changing mm. rooms and I'm like, Oh, you know, like the mum speaking German and the daughter speaking English, and I'm just like, I know, I, I know that, I know That's that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> but for me, it's it's completely normal that I would yeah. speak only to my brother in in, in Spanish, and that everybody in my mm. family will understand, and that we'll have different languages. For me, I I grew up doing that, so it's it's not bizarre. Yeah, it was that school environment, and the kids would speak Spanish. Exactly. Yeah, but it's definitely amazing that you, so early on, you were able to catch all those languages. It's just a blessing for the future. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things when people, learning French was the first time that I actually had to learn a language and understand mm. the grammar without learning it as sort of a mother language or something like that. So, um, And did that come easily 
or was it a struggle? Because French is not easy in terms of grammar or conjugation. But the fact that you have naturally learned all these languages before, has it? For sure, for sure. No, I think definitely it's helped in that um, when you come across uh, a new way of doing grammar, basically, mm. you're not confused going like, well, no, I'm, you know, the only way that it works is this. You just go like, fair right. enough, you know, this is the structure of the language. Um, and you're more willing to accept that. Sometimes it can be confusing. Um, yes. I remember the one thing that I got very, very confused with is using en um, mm. in French. Like uh, if you're asking sort of how many oranges there are, are there? In French, you'd say, il y en a trois. Mm. In that en, where you have to keep it, because in English, when most of the languages, you can say there are three. You yeah. don't have to you say there are three of extra. it. Yeah. Exactly. You don't, you don't have to specify of the thing that you asked me, there mm. are three. Um, so that's the, the one thing in, in, the, in the French language that I remember that really threw me. And nowadays, you just assume it's part of the language. And if, if I were to skip it out, it sounds wrong. But it took me a long right. time. You I didn't have that natural, it. this sounds wrong. Or, you know, this is yeah. a weird way of sending a, saying a sentence. Sometimes it happens. Um, but what, um, one of my friends really likes to say sometimes, he, he just goes like, oh, you're speaking Yoda French again. it's a cute way of putting it (laughs) it's a very it's a very amusing way of putting it um because sometimes i'll still put put most things in the correct place and one thing will be slightly out of place but to me it sounds completely normal because in other languages that's how it works that's how it works yeah you know so, so my brain goes you know check grammar yes and sometimes it doesn't go like check French grammar. It's just like no, just check grammar. <laughs> it's Spanish English. It's the same. Go. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with that. So um, the, the one thing that other languages really helped with is pronunciation. Mm. Um, yeah, especially that you've gone to different areas. Exactly. I think I I was talking to somebody recently, and they said from your fifth language that you learn, all of the languages become much, much easier just because mm, your brain yeah. apparently knows all the different brain. like ranges of grammar. Basically, yeah, it, it, it just becomes easier to accept and understand how other languages work. A lot of the time, the, diffi- the hardest part of learning the grammar of learning a foreign language is accepting the way it sounds and the way it works, because for most people, you're learning it as a foreign concept and it remains sort of foreign rather than just going, this is French. Yeah, I think there, there's this piece. And also, like, grammar is this thing where you just have to get through it. Like, you can do all the efforts that you want around, like, learning vocabulary. But if you don't have the grammar, you don't have the basis and the structure of the language. And it's just something you have to learn and understand the language mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. learn all the exceptions because we are in France. So, you know, there's the rule and then the, the list of exceptions, which is longer yeah. than the list exactly. of things to which the rule applies. <laughs> so you just have to accept that there's going to be this ton, this huge list of exceptions Absolutely. and you have to learn them. But I've heard Dutch is worse in terms of exceptions than France. So... Fair enough. I have to say, I can't, I can't speak for the Dutch. Maybe a new challenge for you, Dutch. <laughs> to be honest, one of my life goals is learning 11 languages, at least 11 languages. My dad knows 10. So I'm just like, okay, I'm going so to one-up you. It's literally about one-upmanship. <laughs> All right. Okay, we've unpacked a lot around languages. Just coming back to this 
multicultural piece. Like, do you feel that you have a sense of belonging to the UK, to Germany, to Spain? That's that's also one of my favorite aspects to to discuss with people. I remember um, a couple of years ago, actually, uh, I went back to the UK. And my dad was saying, you know, now that you've you have lived in the UK for for about 10 years, do do you actually feel more English? And it was very amusing because, as I said, at the beginning, I identified as a Spaniard with foreign Mm. parents. And what I always say to people, when I went to the UK, I actually became more German. How? Yeah, (laughs) that's that's (laughs) a very bizarre thing of like, that's the wrong country. Um, But basically, because let's say before, I don't know, the beginning I'd identify, let's put figures on it, like 60% Mm. Spanish and then, you know, 20% um, English and 20% German or something like that. When I went to the UK, that Spanish identity shrunk effectively, um, which left the space for the English and the German identities. And they both developed um, much more in that I realized that there were things that I'd considered very normal growing up, like something mm. really, really simple. Like I go into somebody's house and I'll take my shoes off immediately. Okay. Which is something that you don't do in Spain at all. But because I grew up in my own house, we did it in my own That's house. So for me, that was yeah. normal. Exactly. And then when I went to the UK, everybody was like, why are you taking your shoes off? And I couldn't say, oh, it's because I'm Spanish and that's what they do in Spain because mm. no, it's what they do that's in Germany. True. Exactly. So I remember this became very, very clear to me when I was having, um, of course, a debate about the validity of scientific research um, done during World War II by Germany during the Nazi period um, in a sociology class. You know, this had a context Mm. for this debate. And I decided to chair this going like, well, I'm the only German person in this room. So, you know, I'm not going to be either either side of this Mm. debate because that would just be too awkward. Um, So I just chaired it. And eventually some people were going like, okay, what, what exactly are we discussing? And my response was, well, we're discussing if I tortured people for a valid reason, or I just tortured people with an excuse. <laughs> um, and it was that very strange moment where I just realized, like, I've just used I and I... we in the present time. Like I, I, I was born in 92. I was not around for <laughs> World War II. I didn't actually do any of these things. But that German cultural identity of it is we and it is us that, mm. did, that did that and that continued to feel that guilt for this had come through through the years. Like I've never actually lived in, in Germany, but that mm. sense of guilt and responsibility still came through. And I acknowledge that it was me that did these things um, during, during that time. Right. Uh, another thing that I remember with... Um, with another friend of mine, we were discussing German politics, uh, and he said, oh, Merkel just wants all of the power, um, and because Germany couldn't have it from a, from a military perspective, now they're just trying the economic mm. route. And I was so shocked, I just burst into tears, literally, just in oh, the middle wow. of this very normal conversation, I was so shocked that somebody that was so close to me could so fundamentally misunderstand me. Because And your country. She, in my country, in my identity, um, because not at all. Like Germany spends loads and loads of money giving it to southern countries in, in Europe, trying to develop all other countries because Germany does not want to have the power because we have seen what goes horribly, horribly wrong when you do those things. 
so that's one of the things where you know when I say actually going to the UK made me more German because I realized that you I also realized had it that. but exactly but you all you probably always had it in you but you had absolutely it hadn't really come out absolutely but so all this comes from your mother and the way she brought you up then I guess exactly it, it's, it's that sort of day-to-day and the way that she'd react to things I remember oh. um, a few years ago there was a pilot that had some mental health issues and he crashed a, a, a plane in, in the mountains, killing everybody that was in the plane with him, commercial flight. Um, and he was a German pilot. And it was obviously a, a great source of shame and again, guilt that mm. another German person would have killed a hundred people by crashing, by choosing to crash this plane. Um, so I remember discussing this with my mother and she was so extremely upset with a sense of guilt of it is I, it is we, again, it was that same mm. thing of we will acknowledge that guilt and we'll take it on and we'll make it very okay. present part of sort of the grieving process. Yeah. And that's not something that, you know, as an eight-year-old, I just did not discuss discuss the horrors of World yeah. War II with my mother. No, no way. But you, in the way that you talk about Germany and, and, and the language, the way that we express ourselves, it, it comes through. Something that they say very commonly in France, sorry, in Germany, is you can be proud to be German, but you cannot be proud of Germany. Mm. Germany has a very bad history. It has its flaws. It, just, just a few. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so you cannot, um, you cannot be proud of Germany as a country, but you can be proud of the culture and the mm. way you are because of being a German person. And that's something right. that's very subtle. Um, often having discussions around flags, for example, is you, you can unpack a lot of identity through the way that different cultures relate to their flag. In Germany, okay. to this day, they'll still describe the German flag as red, black, and gold in completely the wrong order of, of colors. Mm. But it's not yellow, it's actually gold. And okay. I remember having this discussion with a friend and going like, no, it's yellow. And they're like, no, it's gold. Like, it's very specific. It's gold. And I'm like, okay. Um, whilst <laughs> in Spain, if you see the Spanish flag, immediately has very political connotations because of the mm. civil war that we had in the 30s. Um, so anybody that carries around the, Span- the Spanish flag, say like in their wallet or something like that, um, you're going like, okay, is this an expression of your political tendencies much more than your patriotism? Whilst in the UK, okay. having a wallet that is covered or, you know, in the shape of the, of the UK flag is, is just an expression of, you know, I like my country, basically. It doesn't right. have any political meanings or context. But another thing is the way the language, the, the cultures bleed into one another um, in that everybody goes like, oh, World War II, you know, Germany did a lot of horrible things. Absolutely. Hmm. What a lot of people don't realize is that the UK also did a, a lot of horrible things um, yeah. through uh, one of the things that I learned actually when I was here in France, through t- diverting food from India to the UK um, so that the UK was not at risk of starvation. Um, there were actually 4 million Bengalis in India that died of starvation because of this. Mm. And, you know, we go like, oh, Germany killed 6 million Jews and political prisoners in concentration camp. That's horrible. And yet Churchill is considered to be, you know, a hero, basically, yes, despite the fact that he signed the orders. You know, again, it comes back to history is written by the victors, for sure. Yeah. But 
by being German and being very open about my own, you know, the, the issues that German history has and, and the things that we have done, it also enabled me to become more aware about the horrors that have happened, you know, through the British Empire, for sure. That's mm. something that is very relevant and very much part of the discussion nowadays with, you know, mistreatment of and racism of Indians, Pakistanis, Jamaicans in the UK and all of these things, but also even goes further back into the Spanish Empire. Um, and right. the fact that for me, one of the things that I absolutely love about the Spanish language is the amount of Arab and Arabic roots mm. that it has in the language, um, because mixed. we were occupied for 700 years. And at that point, you know, you couldn't say that a Spanish person is very different from a Moroccan or something like that, because there was so much mixing of the language, of the culture, of mm. the people themselves. And you see a very strange phenomenon nowadays where Spain is brought on trying to erase all of that. That like, right. Exactly. It's like, oh, no, no, it's all about sort of the Reconquista and like how we got mm. our country back. There was a lot of cultural baggage, shall we say, cultural integration that happened through that period that now everybody's trying to sort of literally whitewash it. The, the entire thing and um, having discussions with people about this, you get all sorts of different views. Um, and I find myself often disagreeing with the natives, shall we say, or the locals, right. because of the fact that I bring a more nuanced experience and because of the fact that I've, for them, this might be a very specific conversation that they're having in a specific context. Whilst for me, I've had exactly the same conversation in different contexts at different right. levels of, you know, this conversation has been going on for many, many years and the mm. way we speak around it has changed. So all of those factors have contributed to each other. And then sometimes it can lead to confusion for people when I will completely not engage the same way with the culture and the way that they do. Um, a very common example that I bring of this is the police and the military um, and their but presence. But you don't have the same background as them, so... Exactly. So for them, when I'm speaking to specifically, say, an English person, the police is something that is there to protect them. Um, mm. and it's a resource that is put at the public's disposal. Whilst right. I come from a background where the police was militarized and was heavily politicized. Um, and I sucked in that culture. Firstly, the Spanish culture of, you know, we're, we're still getting through the effects of having a civil war and be, being a military dictatorship until 75. And even though I don't have any relatives that suffered through those periods, you still absorb the culture and the general knowledge. Yeah. And equally, through the, through the German side, um, I also have the, the, the military and the police is something to be very careful about and they have to be highly monitored. And, you know, it can, be, it can go wrong very quickly. Hmm. So it's, I had both of those cultures where everything that is military and police is something that, you know, you have to be very careful with and you have to be very cautious right. with. And then I showed up in the UK where you can just go up to a There's a love of the police. Anyway. Yeah, and you yeah. can just go, what are you doing here? I remember going to see my cousin. We arrived at the train station and there was this massive amount of policemen everywhere. Um, and I was like, why is the train station covered in police? Like, this is extremely stressful to get off the train mm. and just see bobbies everywhere. And I'm like, okay, I need to get out of here. Like, yeah. And my friend that was traveling with me was just like, 
that, you know, it's probably just because of the football match or something like that. Like this, there's nothing to be afraid of. Mm. Like it's just preventative. And I was like, no, there must be something going on. No, there must be something going on. And he was like, okay, right. let's just go and ask one of the bobbies. And I'm like, you can't just rock up to the police. Just ask them, <laughs> Yo, mate, what are you doing here? You know, you can't Get do that. It. It's my place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he was like, yeah, I can. So we literally just stopped a policeman and just went like, excuse me, you know, what, why are there so many policemen? And the policeman was not shocked, was not offended, did not react negatively. Yeah, like all of these, yeah, yeah all, all of these reactions that I had in my head where, you know, this person's now going to start, you know, like this is going to become a massive argument and I, I'm going to have to be like exceedingly polite to get mm. out of this scenario did not happen at all. And right. it was just like, oh, yeah, it's just because, you know, there's a football match tonight. So we're just making sure that everybody that's getting off the trains to go to the football match so it's a funny aspect around the police I've, I've never really asked myself the question but now that you talk about it indeed there's difference of appreciation between like France and the UK and Ireland absolutely that's that's one of the things I mean the, as I said the other one's the military and hmm. I remember for me one of the biggest shocks um, that I had is you can have militarized education in the UK where you can have schools that are attached to the army and that are sort of partly or that you know the army will go and will run activities in a school and for me when I remember one of my friends learned to handle weapons through one of the pseudo boy scouts things that they do in the UK the sea marines or whatever it is that mm. they do for kids um, and for me coming from a, a Spanish background I was like that's just child soldiers. Like their training needs to be child soldiers. That was the <laughs> only way in which I could interpret what my friend was telling. And I'm just mm. going, at what point does it Is sound reasonable? Go into a school and give a child a weapon and tell them to point at something and shoot. Mm. How? And my friend was like, well, it teaches you responsibility. And I was like, get a chicken. Raise a chicken. <laughs> you want to learn responsibility? Get a bloody like classroom plot. <laughs> so we ended up having this, and I, like this is something that even today, like you can you can still hear it in my voice. Like for me, it's just shocking. It's shocking, yeah. That, and you know, this is one of those aspects where I can just not reconcile the experiences that I have mm. with the culture that is actually to... mine. Mm. because at this point I'm just like no I am a foreigner right now and I will only ever be able to interpret this as a foreigner because mm. this is just so alien and it's the point at which my own culture has pushed me too far right which is a very weird weird situation okay let's switch gears a little bit and see what brought you to France <laughs> sure <laughs> um so for me in, in my life I've realized I do about 10 years a country. That's that's sort oh. of the range that I have. Um, I moved to the UK at the age of 14. And in 2016, I started you know, getting up to my 10 years in the country. And I, I noticed that I was getting a little bit sort of restless. Restless is how okay. I would describe it. I was becoming restless in the country. And it was all becoming sort of too samey. Um, oh. And I remember specifically, I got really bored of the English countryside. The Brits love their countryside. And I was like, mm. it's just green and black <laughs> and grey and dull. Like, I cannot stand the British countryside. Because, again, colours 
are something that's fascinating for me when I go to Spain I associate it with browns and blues from a very very mm. blue sky with not a single yeah, cloud each country sort of has its landscape colors absolutely yeah. absolutely um instead of that brown from a very earthy sort of you know you've got quite a lot of deserts and sort of arid areas um in Spain um so those are the colors that I associate with Spain England was was sort of green and black and I was like this is just becoming really really dull I, I need to see something new I need to see something different mm. and then of course 2016 we had um, the UK deciding to leave the European Union right um, and that was that was a stab in the back that that was I think one of my lowest points when it came to to culture and identity when I woke up in the morning and I saw that the, the vote had, yeah, had the not vote. gone the way that I expected it um mm. and it was at that point how do I reconcile my identity wealth of again the first thing that I've that I said is I identify as European and right. for a long time I could I could specify that to as identify as somebody from the European Union and suddenly that fundamental had shifted for for mm. reasons that were not my own and it was having to deal with a sense of rejection from, from my own, own country, country. It's like, do I have to give my passport back? You know, like, do I, do I yeah. have to reject everything that I was and every, the, entire, the entirety of who I am? How am I going to reconcile with that? And it took me months of, of work and it just, you know, all of my friends going like, we still love you. Um, and, I, and I was going, but you don't, you, you're kicking me out. And, and it was that literally, it was in my, my own country going like, you need mm. to leave now. Um, because at the end of the day, for me, I am more foreign than I am British. You know, I'm always right. going to be like two thirds something else, independently of what country I'm in. Mm. I'm at the very least two thirds something else. So at, at that point, I was I already had this feeling of restlessness and like, okay, I need to start planning my next move, and that was just a very very strong trigger of okay, and I yeah, that was help. an accelerator. Like, it's I, so surprising. I, I think you're the first person I hear saying. I'm European because you have that mix of the UK, of Spain and Germany and how you really identify as a European. And like, it's great to hear that some people do and there is, well, there is an identity to Europe, um, the European Union. It's there for a reason and it has brought people together. Absolutely. And I think my brother and I sort of we were the, the trailblazers of that generation but especially mm. now sort of the kids of our generation are going to have that to a massive amount because I, I know people now sort of our age that are having kids where you know sort of mums from Zimbabwe dad's Italian and they're living in France mm. all of those kind of things and especially for me that European identity is becoming so much stronger because although we've been talking about my past as you know being Spanish, English and German that currently living in France and having been living in France for the past four years, there are a lot of aspects of French culture that I have taken for myself. And one of the things that I loved is I, I immediately knew that I wanted to stay in France for a long time. Again, as I said, I, I reckon at the time when I arrived here in sort of 2017, 
there is firstly the presidential election, which immediately makes you engage with mm. the country and the politics the and see what's going on. Um, the other thing that was going on was Paris was running the campaign to run the Olympics in 2024. Mm. Um, so when people would be like, oh, you know, you've just arrived. How long are you planning to stay and those kind of things? I would just jokingly say oh, until the Olympics. I'm going like, you know, yeah, at least you want to be part of it. Exactly, which in 2017, the Olympics were a very, very long time away. So people were going like, oh, you're planning to stay for the long term. And it was like, absolutely. So at that point, I always came in with the idea of I need to integrate and I need to integrate as quickly as possible. Um, So it was about meeting French friends, going to do all of the things that French people do and really understanding like the deuxième degré that they, that, Mm. that they like very much, all of those kind of things. Actually, humor is one of the things that is very specific to each co- yeah. to each country and each culture and each language. Um, yes. So, yeah. Why France? Actually, absolutely. So, um, I this actually also comes to my professional life and where I was at at that point. So, my first studies were biology and chemistry. Since the age of eight, I wanted to be a scientist uh, until the age of twenty-two when I'd finished my degree in science um, and realized that I didn't want to work in a lab, speaking to this exactly the same 30 colleagues all the Mm. time because I speak multiple languages. I I am a sociable person. I have all of these like cultural identities. And it was literally, I realized that the dream that I had had did not match with the cultural identity and just literally Mm. the needs that I had. So I abandoned that idea. I started working in the hospitality industry. Um, very much liked it and sort of discovered a business as, as something that would be quite interesting for me in my life. So at that point, I decided that, that I need to go study again, do an MBA. Um, and my dad, who had studied in one of the Ecole de Commerce, uh, Rouen, right. in the 80s, said, you know, well, if you want to go and study business, France has bucket loads of business schools. Like literally, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that they know. Every despite, city has one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Despite being an exceedingly socialist country, if you want to learn business, you either go to America or you go to France. Two extremes. <laughs> you might think in different ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I say that to French people, they're like, no, that's not how it is. It's just like, and it's well, like, that, that is it. totally how it is. No, actually. It is, it is yeah. true. I've never seen it that way, but it is. Because <laughs> in France, you always do the distinction between école d'ingénieur and école de commerce like for them that's yes. the dichotomy of you know did you go down the business path or did you go down the did engineering path engineer. um, I actually ended up doing exactly the same one as my dad I emailed them when I was going through the admissions process and um, because they now they've now merged with Hans it's now Naoma mm. um, so I emailed the admissions people going like are you the old école de commerce one but like because if so my dad studied and you know it'd be hilarious and stuff like that um, and I think genuinely because I emailed them and they were like oh this is going to be a second generation foreigner who's oh, coming perfect. to study in our school they just went like yeah we'll just take you for sure go for it <laughs> go, go. Um, so they they took me in I did that year and that was sort of the launching pad of like okay I need to change country reboot my career um you know continue to explore that side and then um I mean since I was in Paris and Paris does have a very very good um startup bubble that's sort of Mm -hmm. one of the things that I went like okay you know this is 
sort of the thing that's going to enable me to stay in the country at the end of the day job is just an enabler um yeah. of me going like I, I want to stay in this country it was, it was touch and go during the the pandemic that was a that was a rough period yeah. um yeah well that was compli- complicated for everyone that's all. <laughs> yeah 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 it's the okay to, you know do you end up getting booted back to your country and if so which country for me you know it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no I mean for me as I said you know it's coming up to four years or it has been four years now it's coming up to five years now three years um, to go until the olympics <laughs> three years to go into the olympics and i'm like i'm not ready to leave france yet um, <laughs> so you know it's that moment where you go oh yeah i want to buy a place and all of these kind of things and you're like oh okay that's the thing that i'm getting it's going like you know for the first time in my in my life i'm making like long-term plans and going like how, how long-term are these long-term plans is that scaring you yeah yeah actually it's yeah. It, it's that, that very shocking moment of going like am i am i going to get stuck in my identity because i'm so used to my mm. identity changing over the years and over time uh, like my cultural identity exactly is it going to be now i'm just that really confusing foreigner that we're just going to assume, like we're just going to throw her into the bucket of like she's French. And because one of the things that happened to me that I found very, very surprising is um, French people just from the moment I'd spent six months in the country, they were just counting me as one of them. Um, In in my business class, there were 15 of us, um, 18 at one point, um, of which there were, I think, four that were native French speakers and I remember one of my colleagues who was French going uh, talking to another French person going like oh how many French speakers are there and he counted five and I, I you know I turned around and go like no there's only four of you and he looked at me and you know he did the maths and then mm. went yeah but there's you as well and I'm like yeah but I'm not French and he's like fine we'll settle for you're four and a half you know he was just like fine I'll just you know I'll just acknowledge to that you're part foreign or something like that so that's a very heartwarming experience that I had um, especially given that you know when I when we've been talking about France for me it's mostly Paris like if you ask me Mm. going back to the colors of the country for me actually Paris is most uh, you know France is mostly associated with white because of all of the Osmanian buildings that we have everywhere Paris being quite white yeah in Paris yes for me, France has basically been an experience with the Paris or city breaks in like Strasbourg, Lyon, all okay. of those kind of places. So I've not so much seen, oh, actually, I guess um, I spent some time in La Loire um, seeing all of the chateaus okay, so and the all castles. Those things. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the castles are all white as well. So yeah, same like, color. <laughs> Paris, you know, France is just mostly white for me. <laughs> okay. it's, it's just buildings, basically. <laughs> nice buildings. <laughs> Very nice buildings. So Paris is white and buildings. All of France, actually. <laughs> all, all, all of France that I've seen so far is just basically white buildings. I feel at ease right now with that. That's and for me, as I used to be a person that couldn't do cities at all. Um, mm. I grew up predominantly in villages, so it's it's an unusual experience to suddenly be going like, "Hey, I might be making like really long-term plans by buying a place in a place that I would have never expected myself to be, which is mm. Paris or a large city." Um, so that's that's quite a lot to sort of unpack, um, yeah, culture-wise. And see that you, you you evolve also the fact growing up like our wants and values sort of shift not only with what we've lived but also the fact that you're looking for something different to what you were ten years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely, and 
the shocking thing is people can notice that actually nowadays, amusing, amusingly enough, I speak Spanish with an ever so slight French accent. Oh. Which is a very bizarre <laughs> thing. So you'd think Spanish is the, the one language that I would fundamentally know how mm. to speak like a native. And, uh, you know, as we were discussing at the beginning, I identified more as Spanish at one point. But um, now, because I think because I've made, tried to make such an effort to integrate in the French culture and um, it's seeped in to to other, uh, to other languages. So that was ironic. Hmm. Right. There was a lot to unpack there. I think we can move to the recommendations. We'll go for Paris. One bar, one restaurant and a carte blanche. Okay. So for the bar, it's Café Laurent. Okay. In Rue Dauphine, um, which uh, oh. they do uh, very nice jazz, live jazz concerts. Um, oh. It's very, it, it's the kind of place where you actually have live background music is, is the best way that I can explain it. That is not background noise levels. You do go there and you can have that conversation, but also you can very much enjoy that sort of Paris jazz experience hmm. um, that people identify sort of you know they have that very romantic idea in their heads and it very much fits in with that so I absolutely love that place I take everywhere everybody that I know oh, the amusing thing is when I know people that are Parisian and they don't know that place and I'm like shame I on you exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely recommend that one one restaurant would be um, Les Select in Boulevard Montparnasse right in front of um, uh, la Coupole, uh, next to La Rotonde, yes. so it's, it's sort of a very no, well-known spot. Um, but for me, I, I love Le Select over there, the, the Confit de Canard. It's, it's the <laughs> one thing that I always order there. It's absolutely, it's wonderful to have a quiet evening, you know, when you just want to have a planche and a, and a glass of wine with somebody. Um, it's the kind of place where you can take somebody to celebrate um, whether that be sort of a birthday or I remember I, right. I celebrated my graduation um, over there with my family. It really fits the bill and, you know, you just want to sit down and have a, a hot chocolate mm. and watch people, you know, do, do the very Parisian thing of just like okay. terrace watching, basically. Yeah, um, get a newspaper know, and exactly. for an hour. <laughs> it, it fits all of those different aspects. Um, and I've always had wonderful service, uh, wonderful food. Um and the carte blanche, this is going to be a very bizarre one. So I'm going to start by explaining my reasoning before I give the choice. Um, but I was having a discussion with a friend in Madrid recently. Um, and I was saying I'm going to the you know, Museum of Madrid, um, History of Madrid, to discuss it. Or even when I went to visit El Prado over there, mm. um, the, the rooms that I found the most interesting actually were the ones that were talking about the development and the building of the building, you know, the, the historical context in which El Prado, um, the museum started. And we were having this discussion of actually, when you go to, to a new city, what you actually want to learn is about the city. Right. What is the culture? What is the heritage of this? And I've not, probably some people listening to this are thinking, oh, I know what she's about to say. It's not. Um, my experience that I had, <laughs> that I had um, with going like I'm learning about Paris as a city right now is when I went to the sewage museum. Okay. <laughs> there is a museum of the sewers of Paris and it does actually run through an actual functioning uh, sewer. And right. I remember taking my friend to see one, to this place going like I find this fascinating and they walk you through the entire development of 
the Paris sewers and how it was a complete mm. nightmare. It was one of the last big country, uh, big uh, cities to develop a sewer system. And basically, they, right. you know, they wanted to see how London did it. They went like, oh, those are the problems that they're having. How can we improve it? Obviously, it was sort of during the um, Napoleonic times. So it was very like Cartesian. And it was very much not just the, you know, this is, you learn about raw sewage or those kind of things, but it was actually, you learn yeah. about how this entire changed project the changed the city in such a fundamental way. And it explained why it was required, what systems had been tried previously, all of those kind of things. And that was just fascinating to learn. Um, so that, you know, if you give me a carte blanche, um, and it. people want something that's really, really out there. The the Suez Museum in Paris is is the place that I'd go. You know, just get and spend. It's one of those fairly easy museums. It's fairly small. You can do it in two hours, and then go and have a nice hot chocolate. Also, you won't come out stinking. It's one of the, I think one of the, one of the panics. <laughs> it's not the real catacomb experience. <laughs> no, 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 no. Firstly, you can actually breathe in there. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't smell that bad. And secondly, you won't come out going like, oh my god, I need a shower. Um, Okay, well, it will be added to the comments of the episode then. <laughs> and final question is, what's your, I want to say expat song, but I feel like it's going to be European or international song. <laughs> exactly. What, what, what's the song that I identify with? For me, it's very much Englishman in New York, purely because you'd think that a person that is a native English speaker would feel at ease in a native English speaking country. And again, it talks about sort of those fundamental differences of, again, you know, a person that you'd think would want coffee, but they actually want tea and the way they drink their tea is very weird. And it's about that side of you're making assumptions about me that are not necessarily true. Mm. Because cultural identity is not something that you can see in somebody. It's not something that you can no. instantly understand in the way that many other um, sociological, socioeconomic factor, factors as well can be understood um, by having a five-minute conversation with somebody. So that's, I think that that's definitely the song that I identify with when I'm having that feeling of, you know, like, is Where it just me? Lying? That's always this weird, yeah, it's, you know, like... How does my cultural identity fit in with this, especially nowadays where I, I describe it very much as no matter where I am, I am a foreigner. It's mm. it's like being an Englishman in New York. But it's something I think it's hard at first, but it's something you end up accepting and you know that's I, how it's going to be. I, I, I love the way it is now, but absolutely it's, it's been a long road to, mm. to accepting that identity, especially because you can't do anything about it. All you can do no. is accept it um so that there you are that's that's my recommendation well lovely well thank you so much Nifer. <laughs> a lot a lot around yeah the complexity of identity of nationalities of the patriotism you have for some countries versus others is yeah, super interesting Absolutely. May I add, actually, one, one yes. just one last thing, actually. Um, the, the one person that I identify most in the world is something that I also find very fascinating is a lady called Noor Khan that is known in France as Madeleine de la Resistance, um, who right. is an Indian-American Russian-born there you have it. <laughs> a woman that lived in France and the UK and became um, one of the SOE uh, members working in in here in Paris during during the occupation period, 
and that's the one person that I found that was so fascinating that I completely identified with and ended up actually giving her life for a country that most people would say wasn't even her own. So, you know, mm. when, when you can talk about the complexities of identity, it, it goes very, it's, very far. So. Yeah, it goes very far. And it's where you you pick up so much mm. things in the different you know. countries. And even with the people that you are, that may be foreigners, again, you might pick up part of their identity also. Absolutely. Spending, Absolutely. well, you, your mother in Germany. <laughs> there you are. So you now, now that we've made a very, very dense session, um, but thank you very much, Pauline, for having me on this. It was, it was absolutely fascinating. Thanks for Guys, thank you for listening. As usual, everything will be linked in the comments and stay tuned for the next episode.